Welcome to Cities Down South, a show about where we live and how we get around our towns and neighborhoods. Today we're sitting down with Georgia Bike Safety Education Programs Manager, John Bennett. John is a former Executive Director of Bike Walk Savannah, a professor at Valdosta State University, and a columnist for the local news in Savannah, where he's been writing about biking, walking, and urban issues for years. John has walked the walk on complete streets and livable communities in our state, and it's a great opportunity to have him here to tell us his thoughts on how we can build better cities down south. One thing before we get started, you may hear us refer to Terry later in the show. The guy we're talking about is Terry Landreth. He's a longtime biking advocate and business owner in uh, downtown St. Mary's, Georgia. Uh, for more on Terry, go ahead and take a listen to another podcast called City Zen, which has a great interview with him that came out in 2020. And without further ado, here's John. So tell me a little bit kind of about how you got interested in this field. Have you always been interested in walking and biking? Um, have you kind of fallen into it over the last couple of years? Kind of how is this I, I would say about? it's it's been continuous since I was a child with a few interruptions. And like a lot of people my age, and I don't know if I'm required to by the podcasting laws to reveal my age, but I will just say I grew up in a time uh, in a suburban type neighborhood in South Georgia where I was sort of a latchkey kid, but also on a Saturday morning for my friends and I, it wasn't um, unusual to leave the house <laughs> in the morning and not come back till it was dark. So we were able to range far and wide and pretty much make our fun wherever we wanted to. And the bicycle was the primary method of transportation to for my friends and I to, to just explore the world around us, to get to other neighborhoods, to get to other places. And then in high school, I think riding a bicycle at the time was probably the least cool thing that you could do in the world. So I, um, I had a car at the time. But then when I went to college... I started riding a bike again primarily because I was accumulating lots of parking tickets on campus. So I moved closer to campus and, and bought a bike, a, a beach cruiser from Walmart that I used to ride around. When I came to Savannah and when I got out of graduate school in 1993, I lived downtown and pretty much walked everywhere I needed to go. So I didn't really, I think I had a bike at a time, but I became, I, I guess you would say at that time, a, a walkist mainly. Um, and, uh, <laughs> I ended up moving to Atlanta in, I guess it was about 20 years ago. And I got involved with PEDS, Pedestrians Educating Drivers on Safety, because I was walking to work in my job at Georgia State. And I noticed conditions could be better. So I got involved in PEDS and eventually came back to Savannah about 18 months later and started a group called uh, Pedestrian Advocates of the Coastal Empire, or PACE, uh, mainly because I discovered in the in the short time that I'd been away, Savannah seemed like a, a more unfriendly place to walk than it had before. So I started that group mm -hmm. with a couple other people and um, tried to make the, the surrounding neighborhoods safer and again mostly focusing on walking but I'd always lived downtown and, and about I guess it was 2003 I decided to to buy a house and I couldn't afford to live downtown so I wound up about I guess about two miles from my office where I was working at the Savannah College of Art and Design and I was driving to work every day and I thought this is uh, a little bit like using a steamroller to iron a shirt it's more tool than is needed for a job this job so I bought a bike at a at a yard sale and, you know, it was a, I guess you would call a hybrid bike, but I'd seen online, I guess, the beginning of the, 
the city bike. So I bought uh, baskets for the back of it, put a rack on it, fenders, uh, kind of a more upright handlebar, all that stuff, and made myself a commuting bike. And I started riding my bike to work and eventually started to see how many bike trips I could replace or how many car trips I could replace with the bike trips. And it turned out in Savannah, where I lived pretty much my entire life within a three-mile radius, just about all trips. Um, so I started getting more involved in um, mostly online, looking at how other bicycle organizations in other cities were structured. And at the time, I was a little bit involved with the Coastal Georgia Greenway, which has since been part, become part of the East Coast Greenway. And built their first website and did some other work for them. And in a meeting of the Coastal Georgia Greenway, I uh, met uh, a person named Drew Wade, who's a local physician. And we started talking. And at the time, we were the only people in Savannah who had cargo bikes. So we had seen each other around town on our cargo bikes, but didn't know each other. But we wound up at that same meeting and looked at each other and say, hey, you're the other guy with a cargo bike. So we started talking and we certainly supported the East Coast Greenway and the Coastal Georgia Greenway, but we thought Savannah really needs a bicycle advocacy group. So in 2007, we started meeting in 2008, uh, what was then called the Savannah Bicycle Campaign, now Bike Walk Savannah, became a 501c3 organization, and we were off and running trying to make Savannah a better place for bikes. Our original slogan was, uh, let's make Savannah better for bikes, but then we realized the true, I guess, more important thing was bicycles make Savannah better. And that was kind of our mantra for all those years. I love that. I actually really like that frame. It, it was something that we thought, well, you know, we wanted to be able to talk about the benefits of bicycling for people who don't see themselves of ever riding bikes at all so that they would support it too. So, you know, they may not care about bike lanes, but they, they do care about possibly safer streets for everyone, or at the very least, if we could convince them that every person they saw on a bicycle was potentially more one more parking space that they, they might have access to in downtown Savannah. <laughs> if we couldn't get them on altruism, we'd get them on practicality, right? Or self-interest. So we really, from the beginning said, this is something that makes all of Savannah better, not just people who ride bikes. So tell me a little bit, what is your kind of role right now at, at Georgia Bikes? What does kind of the day-to-day -day look like for for you? Well, it, it, like everything else, it changed radically uh, over the last year. Normally in my position, I would be offering education programs uh, around the state, both to bicyclists, both children and adults. So doing uh, smart uh, League of American Bicyclists, smart cycling classes, bike rodeos. We also have a program that offers uh, training to law enforcement officers about how to deal with bicycle crashes, how to investigate crashes. Uh, unfortunately, it, it, the academy, a lot of law enforcement officers get a lot thrown at them, and, and bicycles and traffic regulations related to bikes uh, often aren't the case. So normally I would be all over the state doing that type of thing, but of course it hasn't been able to happen uh, in the last year or so, I hope that'll change. So we've endeavored to move as much of that online as possible. So we developed some materials, uh, with the help of the Georgia Safe Routes to School uh, Resource Center to try to get together and uh, at the beginning of the pandemic, especially when, when kids were out of school, and I know many still are here in Savannah and, and, and other places, bicycling was booming, uh, many more people out on their bikes. So we put together some resources so that parents or family members or caregivers could teach bike safety at home to kids who were going to have a lot more time, it seemed, on their hands to be out biking. So to the extent that we were able, we moved those educational programs onto our website. And um, I think it 
you know, there's nothing that always is important and it's good to have, uh, people to have access to that sort of thing, especially if they live in a smaller town that doesn't have any kind of bicycle organization, but nothing beats being out there and working with people about how to, to operate their bicycles safely and, and help them explore how, well, what a powerful type of device a bike can be for changing the way they live and work and get around. So I'm, I'm looking forward to doing that again, for sure. So tell me kind of where we're at in the coastal Georgia community on these issues? What kind of things are you seeing out there? There was a, a General Assembly joint uh, House our House and S- Senate committee, uh, our joint committee, looking at uh, implementation of the East Coast Greenway. So they had a meeting in Richmond Hill and a meeting in, in Darien. Uh, and what I saw is people who I didn't see as cyclists. I saw them as everyday people who came out to tell uh, their senator and representative, we need this. This is something I want in my neighborhood so my kids can get to school so I can, you know, I will never remember, I'll never forget one woman said, I, I just had a knee replacement. My doctor said, you should get out and ride a bike a little bit. That would be good recovery for you, but there's nowhere safe for me to do that. And I think that is kind of a turning point where people who are not what you might think of as the lycra-clad uh, avid cyclists recognize that they need safe places to do it. And and Terry said something that I was very, I think is very instructive. And again, if you can't get people to buy into that argument, think about it in a different way. And Terry said, um, you know, the biggest day of the week at our shop is Fridays, Thursdays and Fridays. And that's because that's when everybody brings their bikes in to get them checked up to buy gear so they can put their bikes on the back of their car and drive it into Florida to, to ride trails because we don't have them here. So they're taking their bikes and their checkbooks and their credit cards and going to Florida. So, um, you know, again, if you can't get a, your head around any other the, other the myriad benefits of cycling, the idea that people are spending money in another state because we don't have those facilities here uh, that allow them to get out and ride is, is an important point. So I think that recognition that this is the better biking and walking facilities are so important, not just for tourism. And obviously it can make a mo- more vibrant economy, especially for local businesses, but the, the public health, the public safety, the social, all the other benefits of having places where people can get out and move around safely. Um, I, I think they're more apparent now than they ever have been. And I think another aspect is people are, again, Terry's customers driving to Florida so they could ride on uh, trails in Florida. People have been other places, even within the state of Georgia, to say, I've seen the trail system they had here or these multi-use paths or the, the bike lanes or the sidewalks in this city. We need that here. And so people have a chance to experience it and they want to bring it home and make it part of where they live. What do you think about the cycling boom? Do you think that it's going to keep up? Well, I mean, if you look at the cycling boom of the 70s, um, what what caused it not to be able to sustain? And a lot of it, you know, if you think about what set up that boom was an interest in health and fitness, the availability of fairly low cost but high quality 10-speed bicycles, right? Uh, and high gasoline prices triggered that. And so more people were riding bikes than ever in the early 70s. But what kind of doomed it was um, the demand was not met by supply of good places to ride, nor was it met by support legislatively and leadership wise in Washington and other places. So the mistake that was made, at least from my opinion, is 
we had that boom that was driven by external factors. And if we had met it with better facilities and more support for cycling, it would have been sustained. So I think that's uh, we're in a similar position now where the pandemic reacquainted lots of people f- with their bicycles. And uh, for the people who are unfortunate enough to live in places where they could safely bike around, they t- took full advantage. And in other places, people saw, well, we're woefully uh, insufficient as far as the, the types of facilities we use. So I think we're really at the point right now, whether it's from, uh, you know, uh, Secretary Pete's new uh, focus at the U.S. Department of Transportation to local governments. Now is the time. So if we want to keep this going, and it would be in everyone's advantage and everyone's benefit to keep it going, we've got to put those facilities in place that uh, that expand the opportunities to get out there and ride bikes, again, whether for recreation or transportation, to extend that to everyone. One of the things I've detected from especially cycling advocates over the last year or so and a little bit, you know, pre-pandemic is the increasing affordability of electric bikes and even electric and even cargo bikes and electric cargo bikes. And there's this sense that I get from them that they, they really think that this could be the key moment, um, especially for, you know, including some of what some people may have thought of as lost cause suburbia towns. Yeah, and um, I, I would I agree with that one hundred percent. And I would encourage you to think in, in uh, I would say, I guess vertically as well. And I will mention a a conversation that I had many years ago with some folks in Macon, and I think this was before Bike Walk Macon started. But they had visited Savannah, and they I often joke that in Savannah, we have done a great job of keeping the ground flat, right? So (laughs) we're nice, nice and level. So people of all ages and abilities can get out and ride a bike. And certainly that's not true in Athens. It's not true in Macon. It's not true in Atlanta because of the hills. And I think talking about, you know, literally leveling the playing field, an electric bike allows someone in a community that has multiple elevation changes like Athens or Macon, an electric bike is going to make traveling by bike more viable for a lot of people who never would have been able to get up the hills otherwise. So I think you're exactly right in in connecting farther flung suburban areas in providing a better option in places like downtown Savannah where there's lots of competition for car parking. But again, those places that aren't uh, they don't benefit from our uh, coastal terrain. It really opens up cycling as an option for people who may not have done it before. And the interesting thing, too, is, that, as you may know, the studies of the the fitness benefits of electric bikes are pretty amazing. There was, you know, the I guess this notion that if it's an electric bike, you don't really get any exercise. And that's been proven that's not true at all, especially, you know, that pedal assist is becoming the more dominant node. So I, I think it really has the opportunity to open up Bicycling is an option for people who may have decided, well, I, I'm not good enough shape or that, or I don't want to arrive at a meeting drenched in sweat because I had to ride up this big hill to get there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I hear that all the time online, you know, especially from people who are trying to uh, rebut cycling challenges and re- or rebut, um, you know, uh, calls for new infrastructure or arguments. That, but like, uh, this will be good, not just for, like you said, Lycra, you know, the stereotypical right like they're clad mammal people who can go to their office right. jobs and they say, well, no one's going to do that because, you know, they're going to be smelly and they're going to have right. to change clothes. But, you know, this is a real option for people to travel, you know, not 
just two miles, but they could travel. Sure. Eight, nine. I'll give you an example here. I mean, uh, Drew Wade, who I missed, I mentioned earlier is one of the co-founders of Savannah bicycle campaign as a radiologist. And his office was about five, six miles from his house. And he w- bought one of the earliest models of this early uh, big dummy cargo bike just so he could go home and have lunch with his family and then, you know, show up again and perhaps interact with a patient and not look like a disheveled mess. Right. So, you know, he, (laughs) it it does provide benefits and we, you know, we have the benefit of a very mild climate here. If you exclude, you know, August, uh, September and uh, July probably. But, you know, I, I think that, you know, when I would talk to rotary clubs and things like that about cycling, you know, they would kind of get a laugh. Yeah, I'm going to ride a bike to work at my job at the bank or the real estate office or the law firm. Uh, yeah, they're going to laugh their heads off when I walk in. They're all puffing and puffing and drenched in sweat. And and now, you know, that that's not necessary if you want to travel by bike. I want to go back a little bit. You you were talking about the, the older motto for um, Bike Walk Savannah, which was bikes make Savannah yeah. better. Um, talk to me a little bit about that statement, because that's something that I think about all the time is that when you design a city or you design a place for walking and biking, it, it, it inherently shapes the, the form of the city into a more pleasant place for everyone. Um, so, I mean, talk to, talk to me a little bit about Sure. Well, I mean, I think it, when we think about what makes a city enjoyable, at least for me, it's again, being able to walk and bike and safely get around under my own power, but that it is a place that is a place that is distinctive, that has aspects that are unique and appealing that may not be, there There may be similar places in other communities, but nothing exactly like it. So sure, I can, you know, drive down to the south side of Savannah and go to Chili's and it'll be just like the Chili's in any other place. And I can go to the Best Buy or the, you know, whatever the big box store is uh, and have that experience wherever I go. But when I'm traveling by bike uh, in general, I'm shopping locally. I'm going to places that are owned by people who may be friends or at least people who live in my community or my neighborhood. So I think when we make communities accessible by walking and biking, it positions local folks and the landscape of smaller locally based businesses to to reach those customers. So when I'm traveling and shopping by bike, I'm spending my money at local businesses because in general, I can't um, navigate my bike safely in, in the south side of Savannah, which is largely shaped by urban sprawl. Um, now, if it makes it more bikeable for me to get to Walmart, would I shop at Walmart? Well, perhaps so. But I think it it kind of, it changes the focus of what we consider to be our community. So, you know, instead of saying, I'm going to hop in my car and drive 20 minutes to this hardware store that's in another neighborhood, maybe I hop on my bike and go to another place that's right down the street where I could get that. Now, maybe I couldn't. I'll give you another saying used to tell people uh, in in dense areas. uh, I often heard people go, well, yeah, I would like to go there. I'd like to eat there. I'd like to shop there, but I can't find a place to park. And my snide remark was, it sounds like your car is telling you where you're, where you can and can't go. So I think, you know, people can make the choice. So if it's easy to get to on a bike, people will go on a bike. And, and it really, the other thing is it really puts you, and this is nothing new and it's um, certainly not my novel idea, but you know, you experience the community more when you're walking and biking, you see things. And I'll, I'll give you an example. One of my former colleagues, 
I noticed that um, uh, a house next to him or two doors down was finally being renovated after many, many years. Uh, and I remarked, I said, are, are you happy that that house, you know, right it right, right there on your street is finally getting some attention, attention and getting rehab. He said, what are you talking about? Well, his experience with his house was backing his car out of the driveway, driving it to work and coming back. And his gaze had never even wandered, you know, a, a couple yards over to see what was happening in a house down. So I think when we look at life through the windshield, we really don't get much of a picture of the, really at the granule level of what's happening in our neighborhoods and, and, and the world around us, whether it's the built environment or the natural world. And I, I forget your question yeah. and I don't think I answered it. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, that's perfect. No, that's absolutely true. Um, you know, I always will encourage people, you know, I think that's one of the reasons that I became so enamored with Columbus, Georgia, when I lived there um, was I didn't have a car, um, you know, and I, I had to get around. I had yeah. to, yeah. I had no choice get around on a bike. I had to take the trail from downtown to the campus. I had to take the streets from my house to the campus and to get to the pharmacy or whatever. Mm -hmm. I had no choice. Um, and that really just puts you in touch with place. Right. And that's really important that that makes you feel like you're a right. person you know, <laughs> right. in the world. Yeah, I, I think it, uh, I mentioned earlier that I grew up in a suburban environment, but my grandparents lived in the, the center of town, the older part of town. And as I got a little bit older in high school, I think I started going, wow, I really like this part of town better. You know, it seems more interesting and uh, it's just a certain quality to it. And, and I really got that even more when I moved to Savannah. I remember I'd visited as a child, but the, the first time I came into town for a job interview it was on a Sunday afternoon. I think it was late August. Forsyth Park was full of people playing Frisbee. Uh, there were people up and down the sidewalks, walking, riding bikes. And I'm like, this looks like, you know, Central Park in New York or something. This is really a place. And it was that kind of dynamism of people out and about sitting on their front steps. It was like, something you didn't see in a suburban community where you could see the fronts of people's houses. But, you know, if there was a cookout going on or people playing, it was in the backyard. And I really liked that idea of things were happening out front where people were interacting in the spaces between houses and in the street and the sidewalk. And I, I think about 15 minutes after I've been in town, I'm like, I've got to get this job. <laughs> I've got to live here. And, and for a long time, I never lived more than about four blocks from Forsyth Park because of that first impression I got as a adult visitor to the city of seeing a, a city that really was vibrant and that people were out and about and not just, they were walking through it and walking in it and not driving past or driving through it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's actually really interesting that you had talked about how you felt as a child. One of the things that I think about a lot is how we design cities and how that affects children mm. and how that affects children's ability to, you know, be independent. I wrote a piece on medium a few months ago um, that was about this, that was talking about kind of how try out yeah. independence as they grow yeah. up, you know, like they, they need to be able to try out being on their own, try out using, money at a grocery mm. store or, 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 or anything just to be alone and beyond make that uh, nearly impossible. Um, and you know, when we design cities as walking and biking cities, we're designing them to allow children to have the experience of being people with mm. agency yeah. in a way that they are not allowed to in some other ways. And 
At the same time, as we as a country age collectively, when we design for children, we design kind of for walking and biking, we're simultaneously a lot of the time designing for yes. older people mm-hmm. as well. So I think I think it almost becomes almost a, a, an intergenerational equity kind of Yeah, <laughs> kind I of agree thing. with that. Yeah, I, I see it in my neighborhood and I see the contrast. There's an elementary school where um, probably has one of the highest rates of kids biking and walking to work. And I'm sorry, to school, walking to the school and, you know, the bike racks are brimming and it, it became for some of the kids uh, kind of tradition that on the way to school, they would stop off at this little cafe and get, you know, a, a muffin and an orange juice and then, you know, have that and sit with their friends and then go on to school. And like, what a cool experience for a child. But in that same neighborhood, I was I was at a doctor's office uh, at a retina specialist and I noticed a woman came in with a a bike helmet on and she took it off and she went up to the counter to sign in like you do at the doctor's office. And I could tell that she had some balance issues and she had some vision issues. Uh, and obviously she was a retina specialist. So I ended up asking her, I said, did you ride a bike here? And she said, well, I I have balance issues as I suspected. I I don't walk very well, but I got a three wheeled adult trike and I ride that thing everywhere I need to go. And that was in the same neighborhood. So it described the, the scenario you just you just offered is that if the neighborhood is okay so that kids can ride to school, stop for a snack on the way to school or the way home and feel completely comfortable and safe. And a person who has both vision and mobility issues can still travel actively to a medical appointment and other places. Well, that's, you know, that's the, the 880 city <laughs> that, the, that Penalosa always talks about. And you're exactly right. Mm-hmm. And, and for everyone in between who still has a choice of how to travel, it certainly gives them a much more appealing option because I think about that school where all those kids are riding bikes on the other side of the school, there is a line of cars, you know, 75, a hundred deep of parents alone in their vehicles, idling with the air conditioning on waiting to queue up to claim their kids from the, when the school bells out and what a better option for, for those students to, if they were able to hop on their bike and, and go home or stop by a park on the way and play or, uh, and it certainly would prevent a neighborhood street from having 75 idling cars on it every school day. Now, that, that actually, I really love that anecdote about the woman in the doctor's office. Because when she had the helmet, I was like, did you ride a bike here? Because, I mean, I didn't want to be judgmental or anything. But, yeah, yeah. she said I, I, it gets me everywhere I need to go. And so we know there are many people who are going to perhaps age out of or have conditions that prevent them from safely being able to operate a car but they still may be very active people who can get around if we provide an environment where that is, is safe and friendly. So it's, um, I, I hate to say this, uh, someone used to tell me it was a dumb thing, but it's almost a, you know, a demographic perfect storm. And if you throw in younger people who aren't as enchanted as driving with driving as I was, um, you've got several constituencies that may be opposed on lots of other issues be aligned on this. From your eyes and your perspective, what do you think is the greatest challenge still to face right now? I, I, and I was thinking about it this morning, reading the Dangerous by Design report, um, which is, you know, something that's an annual event that always, at least for the last several years, has really been quite depressing. And I, I think, you know, that latest report confirms what we know here locally is that it, here in Savannah, most of our 
fatalities or people who are hit by drivers while they're walking are clustered on three separate roadways that all share the characteristics that we know are, are so harmful. The multiple lanes, you know, uh, intersections for crosswalks, hundreds of yards apart, all the things that, that happen when you build what is essentially a freeway through a suburban or, or uh, urban area. And still, whenever someone is hit riding a bike, uh, on a street or a, a section of roadway that you and I would certainly probably avoid if we had the opportunity or someone is uh, hit because they didn't use a crosswalk. Like, you know, that's the first thing the police report will tell you they weren't in a crosswalk and the, the reaction in the comment section. And I imagine in the, in the minds of viewers and, and listeners to radio and TV stations is what was that fool doing out there? Why did they do that? Why was a person riding a bicycle on highway 21 at five o'clock in the morning? Well, probably trying to get to work and that's the only way they could get there. And that's the only vehicle that they, uh, had the ability to use. Uh, why was that person wearing dark clothing and crossing, you know, six lanes of traffic outside a crowd, a crosswalk at midnight? Well, that person works at Longhorn Steakhouse and they had their black uniform on. They had just got off of a long shift and to use the nearest crosswalk, they would have had to walk a half a mile there and back to where they needed to go. So they decided to risk it and try to cross to get to their destination like, like probably any normal person would do. So I, I think there is a collective failure for people who have different mobility options to perceive all walking and biking as mainly recreational or at least not at least elective and and a tendency Mm -hmm. to to blame them when they get harmed in a place where uh that is not designed for their safety comfort or or convenience and i think we have to get back past the idea that the best measures of a roadway are speed and capacity and the idea that people who find themselves in those situations somehow deserved it. And it really comes back to get me every single time I see one of those reports. And I understand why the police and, and safety agencies, you know, stress, don't wear dark clothing, wear a helmet. You know, the, the police officers, uh, law enforcement agencies can't build streets. They can't design streets. So they try to get the message out that they can, but I think it's, it's a shame because it obscures the real work we need to do to make sure that people can get to the to school or to work or to church or the store or their doctor's office without risking their lives and perhaps maybe with a, even a little bit of dignity. I think that's so important to everybody in their in the community and especially as you mentioned to younger people and older people. We've got to reset that mindset that speed and capacity are the ultimate goals in roadway design. We have to understand that the horrible cost that those types of streets have cost us is so far above what it would cost to make them safer. I think we're so afraid of that up upfront cost of making streets safer. And we totally disregard the tremendous cost, both in dollars and lives lost that we're already spending to preserve these streets that are so unsafe. Yeah. If anybody who is listening to this um, is more interested in, in this discussion. There's a great new book that came out a few months ago um, called right of way. Oh, yes. Schmidt. And I would definitely encourage anybody to, to pick yeah. that up at a library or a bookstore. It's a great, great work by a great writer. In yeah, space. for certain. I, I wouldn't, I will second that recommendation. Well, great. Well, thank, thank you so much, John. I, um, I, I, I hope this was 
beneficial for, for well, us? Well, I, I certainly, I, I mean, it, again, it's nice when you love talking about the work that you do and it's a, it's a privilege to, to be able to do it. And I, I, it's sometimes easy to get discouraged, but you know, as you and I have discussed the rewards for getting this right and to making things better really are pretty astounding. Well, that's it for today's show. Thanks to John Bennett for taking the time to talk to us about cycling in Georgia and along the coast. And thank you for listening. If you're interested in more, you can find information, events, and news on the Georgia Bikes website. We are a production of the Coastal Regional Commission of Georgia with support from the Georgia Department of Transportation. Thanks again for listening and see you next time.